are continuing our series in the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And we've been saying these are essentially Jesus' intentional words to the churches throughout all time that are meant to make us into intentional people. And today, Jesus has words that make us people who are intentional in persevering in our faith. Now, that scripture reading, you may have read it and you're like, wow, that's quite a weighty topic for a three-day holiday weekend, right? Well, here we are, second week in the series, and it happened to fall on this topic in the church of Smyrna. So if you will, for the next 30 minutes, just focus on waking up because this is a, it is a weighty topic. But it's also something that, as we'll see, is something that's at the center of living out the Christian faith. If we want to follow Jesus, it's a central thing to be called by Jesus to persevere in our faith when pressure comes to essentially tap out. I want to start with a picture of perseverance. In the second century, there was a well-known church leader named Polycarp. Polycarp was a leader in the church, and he was well-known as for not only uh, teaching, but also he was well-known for organizing lots of what we could call mercy ministries. Nowadays, we might call them social services or whatnot, but essentially not only speaking and sharing of the love of God and the gospel, but also of mobilizing the church to to be the hands and feet of Christ and serving those all around them. So he was well-known as a good man, as a good citizen of Rome, yet at the same time that allegiance ultimately to Jesus came in conflict to his allegiance with Caesar. At the time, uh, in order to try to make sure that everyone was bowing the knee to Caesar, he had issued an edict that everyone throughout the land had to at some point come before essentially a tribunal, and they had to say the words, Caesar is Lord. Pretty simple, right? Well, the meaning behind that was to say that they're essentially Caesar. It was also uh, part of this emperor worship that they had at the time that will impact a little bit more in this series. But it essentially was claiming that Caesar is ultimately the manifestation of God on earth. And, and even though Polycarp was a good man, he was well-liked, at that point his allegiance to Jesus came in conflict with his earthly allegiance, and he, he couldn't go there. He couldn't say the words. He had to stand resolute, and the, as the pressure mounted, they gathered him uh, around. Essentially, they built a bonfire, they put a stake in the middle of it, and they tied him to the stake. And they said, we will give you one more chance if you will just say the words, Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp famously answered with these words. He said, 86 years I have served Christ. He never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they burned him alive. Now, when I read stories like that, one, obviously, we all hope we never encounter a moment like that. But there also is something to this the courage, to the bravery, to, to have convictions of something that are so worthwhile you would even lay your life down for that belief, for that thing, for that reality, to have that. 
And so the question becomes when I read things like that, because I, I see something in there and I go, I want to be like that. How do I get there? Well, here's the interesting thing. I share that story because Polycarp, while he died and this happened around 155 AD, Polycarp was most likely one of the actual first historical readers of this letter to the church at Smyrna that we're looking at today. See, when Polycarp was martyred, he was actually the bishop of Smyrna. He was the leader of the church specifically in Smyrna, where this letter went to. Not only that, but Polycarp is known historically as the last living individual who was personally discipled, mentored by one of the original 12 disciples. Which disciple was that? The Apostle John, who happens to be the author of the book of Revelation that this letter is found in. In other words, where did Polycarp learn to endure? Where did he learn this perseverance? He learned it from the words in this letter. Intentional words that God had spoken to him that he took to heart and intentionally cultivated into his life that allowed him to persevere even when it meant losing everything in this world. And so if you hear that story and you go, I want to have that kind of conviction, I want to have that kind of strength, that kind of courage, perseverance like that, then listen. Because what we're going to look at first are the parallels and the, where it's not a parallel to our day of the circumstances they found themselves in their day. And then second, we're going to look at the mindset. The things that we're going to see are laid out here in this letter that are kind of assumed and made explicit of the mindset that we must have if you are to persevere in your faith when pressure comes, when troubles come, when trials come, even to the level of when pers persecution comes. And so let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for uh, these very poignant verses. And Lord, while for some of us they seem far away from our reality, for some of us they may seem very applicable. The context here may feel more acute. Lord, wherever we're at, I ask that you would make us a people who stand convictionally, resolutely, in the convictions that you've given us. Lord, that we would not be a people who say one thing and then do another thing, but Lord, we would be a people who find and anchor ourselves in the truths you revealed to us, and we would, we would live accordingly even when, if there's pressure to tap out or to deny. And so, Lord, would you give us wisdom and spirit? Would you apply this wherever it needs to be applied in each of our lives? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the circumstances. So what, what's going on here in this letter? What can we learn from it? In verse 9, again, this is chapter 2 of Revelation, starting in, in verse 9, it says, I know your tribulation. Now, another way to translate the Greek word for tribulation would just be troubles. I, I know all the troubles that you're facing. Now, again, it's helpful, John, the, the disciple John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the New Testament, 
uh, and then he wrote Revelation. John is relaying a vision, but this vision, these are the words, so I know who's the I. The I is Jesus. He's relaying the, vi- the, the risen Jesus, this vision he's getting from Jesus to the church. So Jesus is saying this, I know intimately your troubles and your poverty. And he says, but your rich, we'll come back to that, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of saints. So we have a few things that are going on here. It says, you have trouble, and then also you're impoverished, like you're, you're poor. You're having a trouble keeping a job. You're having trouble getting a job. You don't have much money in the bank account. There's poverty. Where does that come from? And then he says, somehow it's connected to this slander that's spreading about these Christians. So how do we put all this together? Well, it's helpful to understand that in the context we find ourselves in these letters, somewhere around like 90 AD. So if you're reading the New Testament, Jesus dies around 32 AD, and then the church is spreading in Acts, and that goes down about 65 AD. Most of the New Testament is essentially from around 45, uh, well, the Gospels capture the whole life of Christ, and then you have down to about 65 AD with most of the letters. And, and during that time, Christianity was largely tolerated. Now, there, were, there was pushback. There was obviously some martyrdom and things that we see in the New Testament. But as Christianity spread and as religion it grew, and by the way, these letters are written to a lot of those first churches that were established at the ends of the known earth at the time. Uh, these churches, all seven, are essentially from modern-day Istanbul all the way over to, uh, like, Palestine, what we think of today. It's known as Asia Minor. And all these churches were kind of that first generation of churches that were started. Groups of Christians in those cities, and they began, they became churches. And so there, during that time, though, it was largely tolerated. And the reason why it was tolerated was that Christianity was understood as a sort of a sect S-E-C-T, a sect of Judaism. And Judaism at that time was tolerated by Rome. It was one of the established religions of Rome. And and at that point, Judaism and the leaders had found a way to essentially kind of support Rome. But then at the same time, in some of those things of Caesar is Lord, there were some things that they kind of gave in on. And, And so it kind of worked for that time until an emperor named Nero came along in in the mid uh, in the mid, about 65 AD or 54 AD, but around 60 AD, he begins essentially what he claims is any of the new religions that have started. I don't trust any of them because what I'm seeing here is that's destabilizing the country. You have to imagine in the ancient world when Rome is spreading and conquering the entire world, the way that you get unity among your kingdom is you can't, you can't text, you can't video conference call, you can't jump on a jet and, and fly around and check in on everything. The way you do it is that you make sure everyone has the same belief system. They worship the same thing. And, and so to have a religion that refused to bow the knee and say that Caesar, the ruler of Rome, is the ultimate God became a threat. So what Nero said was he said, I am going to now look at Christianity as a new religion. Before, so now it's gone from being neutral, the church in relation to the surrounding world, now it's a negative relationship. Now Christianity is seen as a threat. Christianity is seen as something that upsets the status quo, that it could cause division. And so what begins to happen is that while as Christianity had been seen a part of Judaism, they, they could be intermixed, and while individuals might not like that if you're a Jew or a Christian and you might try to delineate, by and large, they could be seen together and it wasn't a threat. But once it becomes a threat that you might be as a Jew seen as a Christian, 
you now need to differentiate yourself. And so what happens is there begins to be this slander. We know this from other historical sources that this begins to arise, that if you're going to be lumped in with those who are part of this new religion, this rebellious religion, this problem religion, you are going to differentiate yourself. And the way they seem to have done this, it seems here, is through slander. This is part, probably part of the reason why Jesus says it's the, the synagogue at that day, he calls it a synagogue of Satan. What does the word Satan mean? Satan is a Hebrew term for accuser. They are now accusing, slandering, and that's become kind of the central dynamic of what's now going on. And so now they're differentiating themselves from the Christians, and this slander has now put them on the outcasts of society. Because of this slander, now they're being differentiated from, and now they can't get a job. There's a, a, essentially a faith-based glass ceiling on their career. They probably can't even get a job. We looked at last week that most of the way that this worked in the ancient world was you couldn't get married, you couldn't get a job, you couldn't hold a job. If you did have a job, it was always tenuous, and it was always threatened because you could lose it the moment that somebody says something that says, you are against the status quo. There were other things that were going on at this time. Of course, as Christians are trying to convert everybody to Christianity, this had probably caused some not to like Christians. Uh, but what, what happened was this began to be everyone differentiating, and they, be, they were slandered then. Now, why do we go into this? One, there's a parallel there. These are the circumstances that they face in their day, but they could be circumstances where you feel a desire to actually go, do I really want to live out my faith? Just at a simple level. It could be just family members, co-workers. It could be other people in the church. We see this politically from left and the right. Where it becomes all around, there can be kind of a slandering and a trying to differentiate from others. And you could experience that. The question is, what do you do with that? Do you stand resolutely? It's a lot easier not to. Now, again, originally, I, I would say this was kind of a pressure was building. Then you get a new emperor in 81 AD named Domitian, and this brings us to the date of what's going on here. He was the emperor from 81 to 96. There he is. Look at that handsome fellow, right? Persecution. So to this point, I'm using the term pressure. There was social pressure to cave on your beliefs and give up, and there was physical pressure. But this is where it broke out, and there was absolute, uh, it wasn't just you could lose your social standing, your economic standing, but also now your physical life was threatened for standing on your faith. And again, because in Smyrna, there also happened to be not just one temple to Rome, there were several temples. Rome was central, and so more and more it seemed acutely there. They were trying to differentiate themselves. So what all does this have to do with today? What does it have to do with today? What are the possible parallels? I, one of the things that's interesting today is to try to delineate out and explain how could something potentially like this on this level, we don't see anything like this in the West. I want to be clear. When we read these texts and we hear, I would, I would want to use more of the term, we, we experience pressure, because I want to reserve a more acute term like persecution for when physical life is truly threatened. Uh, a few weeks ago afterwards, was visiting with a, a gal who comes here who, who was from, from Pakistan. 
her family and Pakistan as believers are experiencing persecution for living out their faith. That is on a different level than us in the West. But it's also helpful to understand and, and actually identify some of the, and say, yes, there is something that is changing. And I, I found that, that kind of neutral, then moving to negative is helpful. See, in the West, because we're largely what's called a Judeo-Christian heritage. In the West, we live in a world that for a long time, the assumption was Judeo-Christian morality, Judeo-Christian worldview. It was, kind of a, it was a Christian, all these things that we think of as, a, as society. And so the defaults were that it was a good relationship between, you could say, the church or Christians and society. So it was good for you to be a person of faith. In fact, actually, if you weren't a person of faith, try getting elected to political office before, let's say, 19 or 2000 if you didn't have a church affiliation. Now, for better or for worse, that could lead to hypocrisy and whatnot and empty religion, but for the most part, there was, you got currency for being a Christian. It was a positive relationship between society and the church. And, and then somewhere around, like maybe it was the 90s or so, it became more of a neutral relationship. Christianity was, no, was, was not as much seen as the dominant or the, the view, the positive view, but now it was kind of you do you and I'll do me. And, and we don't really need to talk about it, and we privatize our religion, and, and we don't, you know, bring that out into the public sphere. And so now it became kind of this neutral relationship where no one, everyone just kind of lets everyone kind of lie where they are. It was kind of this thing where it's like you can be tolerated, and everyone tolerates one another. Something has shifted, though, where now, as we've put it many times, it seems that it's no longer seeing that, that neutral relationship. There was the conversation would essentially go, you know, I don't agree with you. I think you're wrong in your beliefs, but you're just wrong. Something has shifted now to where it seems there's more of a negative relationship. We're now to be a person of faith, and I would, I would extend this even beyond Christianity, but to be a person of faith who would hold to some views of faith, what we might say are traditional views. Now there is a negative view, which is you are not, I don't view you as wrong, but I view you as bad for holding to your faith for living out the principles that you say are true. Now, we know all the different social issues that come up with that and where that can surface, but here's the thing. I think it's helpful for us to go, something is changing, and we want to not get carried away and get all, you know, we're nail-biting and, oh, everything's going, but at the same time, to be sober-minded, to go, what if, because as we'll see, what if God is refining the church and He's doing it in our day because we are so used to assuming that our relationship with the world around us will be positive, and He's saying, actually, do you realize how very, very, very rare that is? That in most societies throughout history, that's not true at all. And are you prepared if you actually do have to stand and persevere in your faith against pressure and being prepared even to the extent of persecution? We see it in ways that this could come up in our day where Christians, the right and left slandering other Christians. It's one of those things where if you upset the status quo, if you don't say the right thing or you refuse to say the right thing or to attend the right thing, wear the right thing, you could be reported to HR, you could be reported to, reported to campus life. It could be that you could feel maybe there is a faith-based glass ceiling on my career, on my economic potential, if I live out my faith, or at least if I won't recant and stand against my faith. These are all things now that are coming in that are real dynamics. 
And so the question is, and by the way, I'll say, this isn't to say it's an excuse to be a jerk about your beliefs. Let me just be clear on that. This isn't to say you're, you're just a jerk and you're, you're always whining and you're always complaining and, and just clamoring for my rights, my rights, but it is saying that these are real dynamics and the things that are being said here could be pressures that you feel today and Jesus is saying, how do you persevere? Because here's what's going to happen next. Are there parallels to their circumstances and ours? The question that immediately becomes when you read this and you go, Jesus says, hey, it's really bad where you are. And you go, Jesus, you see us. You're reigning in the heavens. We know you're the Lamb of God. We know that you're this mighty king. Yes, you see us. So you'll remove the circumstances, right? You'll make them better. Look at verse 10. Because it says, then, he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. You're suffering right now, but you're about, it seems, you're going to suffer more. And then he says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you will be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. You're like, Jesus, do you see me? He's like, I see you. are like, so you're going to make it better, right? And he's like, you actually might get your head cut off. <laughs> What's interesting in Scripture, and let's be very clear, Scripture does not promise that God always makes the circumstances better in this life. The ultimate circumstances, yes. But in this life, the promises, the, the promises are never anchored in the circumstances getting better. The promises are always anchored in you will have me. God saying, Jesus saying, my promises will not fail you. You will always have me. And so no matter the ups and downs, the peaks, the valleys, the mountaintops, whatever stage of life, whatever season of life, whatever circumstances you are in, you can take hold of those, and those cannot be lost. And that's what Jesus gives them here. He points to the truths of who he is. Because the thing is, things can get harder. I, uh, I almost played a video that it came out, I think it was last week, uh, but it, it's like four minutes long, so it's a little bit too long to go over, but it, it's a PSA, a public service announcement, from the Victorian government in, uh, in Australia. And it's one of those where it's a very, very calm, collected, I wish I could do an Australian accent, because one, I would sound intelligent, like no matter what you say, right? Like, you're going to bake a cake, and you're like, wow, he's a genius. Uh, but one, it's just this calm accent, and it's walking through a new law that just last week was activated, that was passed. And it says that in terms of if someone, a family member, pastors were listening there, a person in your church, a person who comes in off the street into the church, engagement on social media, a family member, a school counselor, essentially it kind of covered all the spheres of life and relationships. If somebody comes to you with an identity that's LGBTQ+, or something that we would say would be outside of what's normally considered a traditional biblical view of gender, sexuality, and whatnot, and if you, even in private conversation, attempt to dissuade if I, as a pastor, attempt to even, as said, pray with them, not even just technically counseling, which used to be the legal term you had to use, counseling, to have these, that's how licensure has always been 
defined on these issues. If you do these things, then not only can they, it said, then report this, here's where it's reported, and they will face legal sanctions, fining, and possible imprisonment. If it'd be things like also where you'd be taken down not by media because platforms would decide to take you down, but by rule of law, if this is streaming on Facebook or all the places we stream it, and I state one of those things, what I'm already stating would do it, but it would be taken down by force of law. I don't share that the fear monger. I don't know if that's something I'll be true here. I know it's happening right now and pastors in Australia are trying to figure out what to do. However, the reason why I say that is maybe it will be here in two years, maybe it won't. The issue is when, if it does, would you be able to persevere and stand on your convictions? There are lots of other things we could talk about in convictions and standing for your faith. It could be just sharing about Jesus. It doesn't have to be social issues. The promise is not in the circumstances. The, problem, or the promise that Jesus gives is he will always be near, that he will always be present. And look at verse 8. So this goes back to the intro to the letter. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He sets the stage for this letter with kind of, and every letter does this, Jesus, we've said it's, well, the way these letters work in the book of Revelation in general, way to think about it is Revelation is apocalyptic literature to say, hey, you live in the physical world where you're always seeing things, flesh and blood around you, prom, problems, your bank account statement, the stresses of work, changing diapers, right? Doing the yard work, everything physical in front of you, and the chaos and the pressures of life and the troubles are right here, and it's hard to get perspective and see the big picture. And so what Revelation does is it pulls back the veil so you can see what's true, you could say, reality on a bigger level in the spiritual realm right now. Revelation is written for to encourage the church from the time of Jesus' ascension after his resurrection till the time when he sits at the Father's right hand until the time when he returns again. And so what Jesus says here as he says, I am the first and the last, the words of the one who is first and last. Do you see that I am the one who all the stars of the universe were hung, the sun revolves, the laws of physics, I hold them together, I created these things, I see every hair on your head, I am the first and I am the last. There is nothing that happens that is outside of my control. And so while you may not know what the future holds, you can rest knowing the one who holds it. And he says, I've died, and I'm came to life. So it's not just this wishful thinking of some God off there but, or out there, but I am the God who entered the world, and I died your death in your place. I entered into the poverty. I entered into the tribulations, and I took on the ultimate tribulation of your sin and your guilt and your shame and death, and I remedy once for all, and I've walked out of the grave, and if you're one with me, so will you also. And Jesus gives them these words because he says in the midst of troubles, in the midst of trials, in the midst of the pressure. Do you see that? He's saying you must see it if you're going to persevere. He pulls back the veil so they can see it. 
one of the things we've said several times, I don't think today, I like to think through issues, I like to explain issues. Sometimes here I go down rabbit trails and they're like, that's taking way too long. And I love looking at all these things. However, what we need today, I don't think, in the chaos of the world, we don't just need to be smarter. I think it's about staying sane. And what Jesus is saying here is you can't figure out everything going on. You can't know the future. You can't add it all up and predict rightly. You can't control everything, whether it's at a governmental level or a local level. It doesn't mean you don't engage, but you ultimately can't control. And so what he's saying is it's not about trying to outthink and outsmart all these things, but he's saying stay sane by having a mind that is focused on the reality of my reign and who I am in the midst of it. So you can hold on to those truths in the midst of whatever could come. So what is, so then Jesus gives a mindset. I'm going I'm to call these a mindset, perseverance mindset. These three things are things that Jesus gives us in these letters. And it, first it starts with the first one, which is redemption equals riches. Look at verse 9 again. It says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. Now, why does he say that? He goes into kind of like their economic situation. And, why, and of course, it's hard to be, not have a job. It's hard not to have finances. But why does he ultimately go into that? Because here's the thing. Let me give you the principle and then unpack it. Your convictions, your ability to persevere under pressure is only as strong, only as strong as the state of the thing you put your hope in. Let me unpack that. There are two types of economies we can live in. One is an economy of Christ, of His grace, of His riches, of things that can never be taken away. Or our mindset every day, the way the default reality we live in and engage the world with will be an economy of consumption. It's the world we live in of a consumption, that you get the next thing, and when you get the next thing, it gives you the next thing. And here's the thing. If you live in with a mindset that's the economy of consumption, what it'll be is if I get the next thing, if I have the next thing, then it gives me that security. In other words, what can happen is that thing we're getting is the thing that gives us that sense of safety, gives us this kind of pseudo-salvation, this pseudo-savior. If I have the job, then I'm Okay. If I have the money, which, you know, that's always a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, but if I have the money, if I have the stuff, if I, whatever it might be, that is the consumption thing. If I have the number of followers, if I have the attention, if I have the respect, if I have the affirmation, if I have, if I have, if I have, then I'll be okay. The problem is when that thing is put under pressure that you may lose it. You can say you have all the conviction in the world, but the moment that you lose sight of the riches that you have eternally, and that thing in the economy of consumption is threatened, whether it be the respectability, it be the affirmation, it be the job status, it be the amount in your bank account, the stuff, it doesn't matter what you say your convictions are, when that thing is threatened, if it's ultimately where your salvation is found, then as soon as it's threatened, your convictions will fold like a house of cards. He says, you are rich. You are rich. I, I was reminded of uh, Troy Nesbitt, who's a pastor and worked part of a salt network 
uh, DNA is reaching college cities, and the pastor who actually started the network, he once said this. He said, be careful because you're, you don't own stuff. Stuff owns you. <laughs> I remember when I first heard that, I was like, it's so true that ultimately we, we give our lives just to get the stuff. And then ultimately the fear of losing the stuff causes us to live our lives in a way that gets to keep the stuff. It's the economy of consumption. But he says you are rich. This is why all throughout the New Testament, it talks about our, who we are in Christ as Christians saying, you, do you realize how rich you are? Because think about it. If you run it out, I want the money. This is me sharing my personal diary here, right? Like I want the money in order to get the car because when I drive the car, people look at me and they go, man, look at him. Right? There's nothing wrong with having a nice car. I'm not putting that down. But what I'm saying is what can happen is having, you know, I'm able to pay to take my family on amazing vacations. And everyone looks at me and like, look at that guy. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. Right? What happens is that that thing, ultimately, it gives me affirmation. The money buys the thing that gives me security. The money buys the thing that gives me pleasure. The money buys the thing that gives me comfort. And the way to think about this and what Jesus is saying is the problem is you can lose all those things and they can be fading. But all those things that ultimately you're looking for in those things, you have in me. And they're free. And you can never lose them. You're rich beyond your wildest imagination. That's why he says, for you know, this is 2 Corinthians 8, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Have you ever wished that your money could get rid of your guilt? Have you ever wished that your money could buy love, that when you're sitting in the middle of the night and you're lonely, that money could buy it? Have you ever wished that your money or riches could buy it? Do you see where I'm going with this? All the things, and I could read through Ephesians where again and again and again this theme of richness, he's saying all the things that ultimately we wish our money can buy, but our money can't buy. He says you're rich in it in Christ. And so the question is, every day, do you set yourself up for that moment when, when your convictions could be pressed where you say, I'm rich. And so whether my bank account has a lot, my bank account has a little, my bank account's somewhere in between, whether I have all this stuff or not, like whatever it is. The, in the Bible, it's never that, that stuff. It's just the deceitfulness of riches can be that that's the stuff that we're ultimately after, and it's not. Be able to say, I'm rich. Which economy do you live in every day? The second mindset, resistance equals refinement. In verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Here's something we say again and again here at Anthem. Here are three phases of life. You cannot avoid suffering. I'm about to say something that's at the center of the Bible, and I can't market it or brand it in a way that's like attractive. And here it is. Here's how life works. You are in one of three phases in terms of suffering. You are either about to enter suffering, you are in suffering, or you are exiting suffering. Those are the three stages. Suffering is part of life. We know this just in terms of everyone knows this ultimately, but suffering is part of life. 
The question is not if or when you will enter suffering. The, the question is when it comes, how will you go through that suffering? And the question is, do you have the resources as a human being to deal with that suffering? Because here's the thing. There's one perspective on suffering that says that it's just accidental, purposeless suffering. You, you pulled the short straw. There's no purpose. There's really nothing behind it other than this is just kind of happening. And, and what happens is it's a, it's a crisis. Like I think right now what's happening in our world because we're all over in our expectations of the world. This is why I think trauma is on the rise. And I don't have time to unpack how that connects, but it's, this is why we're so overwhelming because more and more we believe that there really is nothing behind anything. But then on the other side, it would be that there, it's some kind of a sovereign, you could say, trial. That our suffering is something that there is in some way, the hand of God, the sovereign God of the universe is there and he's behind it and he uses it in our life. This is why I say resistance equals refinement because just like a muscle, in order to like build muscle, you need, like if I'm trying to build muscle and you walk up and I've like got my little iPad pen and I'm like, oh, you know, I've got this tiny little pen and I'm just like curling it. And you're like, what are you doing? I'm like, just trying to build some muscle. And you're like, it's going to take a while, buddy, right? Why? Because you need resistance. You need something heavy. And ultimately in our life, God brings resistance that develops the muscles of perseverance that develop character, that refine us. And we can have the perspective that the things that come into our life are actually trials to refine us. And then, as Jesus says at the end of every one of these letters, then you will become a conqueror. You become a victor. You will either live as a victor who sees what the refinement is in your character and how that affects others around you, or you ultimately will, I would say, on the other side is to live as a victim. Always overwhelmed by what's going on. Now, this, he promises them this 10 days, like you're going to be in prison for 10 days. Where does that come from? Revelation alludes to imagery from the prophets of the Old Testament. Again, Revelation isn't like weird imagery and then you just start making stuff up. Revelation, the imagery, always look at the prophets. 10 days in the book of Daniel, chapter 1, sets up the book of the Old Testament where Israel was being tested, being refined for their faith, and they're brought before the king, and they're tested for what? Ten days. Ten days where they only eat vegetables and whatnot to see if they're emaciated at the end, and as they persevere and they experience that resistance, then what happens is they come out on the other side refined, and it is what sets up the rest of the book of Daniel and sets up the rest of the ending of the Old Testament for Israel from that example to turn their hearts and to be freed from their constant trying to ingratiate themselves to other nations that just took advantage of them and exploited them. refinement God uses again and again in our life, if we will have the perspective to step into it and trust Him that He is refining my character. There's a poem that I was reminded of recently that captures this so beautifully. It's Good Timber. Let me just read it. This is, this is how this works, that God refines us through often trials and difficulties, scars. It says, the tree that never had to fight for sun and sky and air and light, but stood out in the open plain and always got its share of rain, never became a forest king, but lived and died a scrubby thing. The man who never had to toil to gain and farm his patch of soil, who never had to win his share of sun and sky and light and air, 
never became a manly man, but lived and died as he began. Good timber does not grow with ease, the stronger wind, the stronger trees. The further sky, the greater length, the more the storm, the more the strength. By sun and cold, by rain and snow, in trees and men good timbers grow. Where thickest lies the forest growth, we find the patriarchs of both. And they hold counsel with the stars, whose broken branches show the scars. Of many winds and much of strife, this is the common law of life. Jesus says, will you trust me in the trials to know that if they come, that ultimately I'm not just punishing you. There's no double jeopardy. We think when we enter into hardships, like God must be punishing me. Here, listen. Yes, there are consequences for foolish decisions. But oftentimes the trials that God brings into our life and the suffering that he allows he leads us through. It's not because he's punishing us. There's no double jeopardy with God. He's ultimately paid the punishment in Christ. He's not doubling down on trying to get more payment. What's happening there is he's refining us so that we, everything of this world that we hold on to, we, it would be stripped away and we learn to cling on to him. So at the next circumstance, the rise and fall, when it rises, we wouldn't just drift off in the outer space, space in arrogance and self-righteousness. On the other side, when we dip into the valley, we don't become despondent and walk away. saying, I've paid the price. In fact, in every gospel, the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Jesus is baptized. The Father says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Do you know what the next verse says right after that? Then the Spirit led him into the wilderness. The gospel writers on purpose, right after Jesus is declared the beloved, delighted in Son of God, the Spirit then leads him into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. I believe that's there structurally in the narrative every time for a reason, to say when you think when I'm entering a wilderness, when I'm entering difficulty, God must have abandoned me, be done with me. But the fact of the matter is what he's saying is if you are one with my son, if you are following him, in fact, I may actually lead you into the wilderness, into, yes, temptation, into trials, into these things, allow them to come to your life because I want you to be refined and I want you to know what it looks like to have it all stripped away, but have me making you into an oak that the wind can't blow over. He's putting your roots down deep. He's refining you. Lastly, the third mindset is resurrection equals resolution. Look at verse 11. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What's this language? Second death. First death is your physical death. We all will die one day. Sorry if you didn't realize that. Now you know right? We all die a physical death. The second death we know from Revelation 20, 22, it's imagery John or Jesus uses in his vision for the second death of the final judgment, where after then we die, but then we stand before the throne of God, we're judged. Do we go to heaven or hell? That's the second judgment. What he's saying is, because of what I've done, you will not perish forever. You will not perish forever. And what he's saying ultimately here is, though you may lose your physical life, your eternal life, can never be taken from you. That is the beauty of the resurrection. That is the beauty of having that truth. Now, the reason why this is important because it conquers our greatest fear. Uh, Ernst Becker 
wrote in 1972 a book called The Denial of Death. Won the Pulitzer Prize, and it was a work where he was saying, essentially you can understand humanity, psychology, sociology, anthropology, everything. You can understand it best by understanding that humanity has an insatiable need to deny the reality of impending death. And he had a very apt illustration in that book where he said it's like death works like this in our life. We stand on the subway platform. Have you ever been in a big city and experienced this? And you know when the train is approaching because it starts to shake under your feet. Everything trembles, everything rumbles. He said death subconsciously operates like that in our lives. Every moment, there are things that come up that remind us that perhaps all the things we cling to for safety, for security, but pleasure, comfort, all these things could be lost like that when the train arrives. So we numb, we escape, we do all kinds of things. What Jesus is saying here is it's very different to stand, live your life on that platform, and know when you feel, especially in times of trouble and trial, because it makes you realize how vulnerable you are, how weak you are, how finite of a creature you are. It makes you acutely feel the fact that that, that rumbling. And what Jesus is saying is, remember in that moment when you feel that, in the middle of the night, when you feel it during the day, whatever it is, remember, as Paul says, what if you live with the reality of when that, it's rumbling, yes, but when it arrives, in the twinkling of an eye, I'll be in his presence and I'll be alive forevermore, glorying in the grace of God and freed from pain and free from evil, free from the presence of sin, in the joy of my master. He says, what if in those moments, I mean, I don't want to say then let the train just arrive, right, because that'd be weird, but at the same time, it's almost like at that point you can live your life knowing whenever it comes, you can almost chuckle at the lies that you have to live every moment of this life, just trying to push that down and get what you can while you can. To cave on your convictions in the moment so you can get something in the moment to avoid that moment. To live resolutely, to remember that. So what I want to do is end with these resolutions. Jonathan Edwards who I've quoted last week, he was an 18th century theologian. He had resolutions. He was like 17 years old and he wrote resolutions for his life, which makes me feel behind the eight ball a bit in my life. But he wrote all these resolutions and were like, I'm going to live like this in light of truth. And he had a whole area section on suffering. And so he wrote these out and he said, these are the things I must remember every day in suffering. First one, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. It is interesting thinking about our own death. I think we live in a modern world where we do everything we can to avoid thinking about our death. It's very healthy to frame our lives and think about it. But next one, resolve when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell, the big, the big outcomes of life. Resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am the better for them, what good I have got by them, and what I might have got by them. It's kind of that, it refines me. How have I been refined by this? When I'm in the midst of it, how can I be refined? 
Lastly, resolve when I fear misfortunes and adversities to examine whether have done my duty and resolve to do it and let it be just as providence orders it. I will, as far as I can, be concerned about nothing but my duty and my sin. To say, what is my job to step into this and live and be refined and stand resolutely? To live in line with the convictions that I have of God's word, what God has made known. So it might be this, I would actually challenge you this week. Take these resolutions and read them every morning. Think about whatever trials, difficulties, troubles in your life. Thinking through these, just marinating in them. They're going to be a little bit different of a focus for you and whatever's going on in life. You might even write out your own. These are obviously 18th century language here. You might be like, I'll put it in my own language, thank you. But writing out what are the things that are true so that every day you would be reminded that this is true. Jesus pulls back the veil to put everything in perspective for our lives to say, do you see that I am risen? That this life is just preparing you for life and eternity with me forever. And so therefore, you're able to almost chuckle when you feel the rumbling, when you hear the accusations, when you feel the pressure to say, I have something so much more. Polycarp, the reason why they chose to burn him at the stake was because in the second century, being burned alive was seen as something that would annihilate. You'd be turned to ash. Your body would be annihilated. Your soul would be annihilated. Immortality snuffed out. Polycarp, in the record, he kind of chuckles as they light the fire. Not a maniacal chuckle, but a a laughing at the fact that as they danced around and they jeered at him and they ridiculed him and they claimed, you, everything that you could live for is going to be gone. And we'll feel that one day, whatever it is for us in the modern day, that it might be we believe, it might not be that we believe our, we'll lose our immortality. But instead, that's the thing that I'll lose my respect, I'll lose my reputation, I'll lose the money, I'll lose the security, I'll on and on and on, I'll lose the ability to get the, the pleasure because how can I do that if I'm dead? All, all the things that we begin to live for that give us that salvation, what happens is as we live with this mindset, we begin to almost chuckle in the face of the lies that those things could actually satisfy us and they're worth cashing in on. Because he pointed out and as Christians for generations after him would, he said, I have the crown of life. That's right here in verse 10. That my Lord will give me the crown of life that nothing in this world can give. And what Jesus is saying to us today, will you pull back the veil in whatever trials, troubles, persecution, pressure, whatever it is that you're facing, will you learn to pull back the veil and do it intentionally? So you'll be able to intentionally persevere. I have given you the crown of life. I have given you riches and everything you need. The only question is, will that be your mindset? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and, Lord, these, these poignant words and these big concepts, weighty concepts. And so, Lord, I pray that we would today, wherever you would have us to work these out in our lives, Lord, that you would guide us. Uh, Lord, as we just ruminate on some of these things in the time of having rest, Lord, that we would, if nothing else, Lord, just that we would see 
how beautiful it is that you have actually given us something that's actually worth everything in this life ultimately for. Lord, we thank you for this life. We thank you for your graces in this life. But Lord, we also thank you that ultimately you've given us something even bigger than this life to give ourselves to. And so Lord, would that, the joy of that just sink into our hearts? And would we have that perspective? Would we have that mindset of seeing you risen and follow you resolutely and persevere? In Jesus' name, amen.